0: All right, I want to speak today from 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, I've always kind of wanted to talk about this, uh, this passage because it's curious to me and it's fascinating to me, and actually I read this um, little book. It has like little sermons given to, to children by J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers, and he wrote, he, he had a whole message to young people Based on this passage, and I've always kind of wanted to reconstruct it. And and I think originally my idea here was to just kind of read his message to you, but then you know I got into the passage and got really interested into into it. So what's left here is maybe a few lessons that he drew out, but most of this is just from my own study. But I'm really it, really interested by this passage, um, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read. I'm going to read kind of the second half of this chapter, and I want you to just think about this. What is the most random thing that happens in 2 Kings chapter 2? This is a pretty random chapter. If you don't believe in the supernatural at all, this chapter is going to be a very hard chapter for you. Um, I, of course, believe in the supernatural. It's very hard to believe in Jesus without believing the supernatural, so this chapter is not that hard for me. But just think about that. What is the most random event that happens in 2 Kings chapter 2? Let's start in verse 9. This is right after. Elijah, not sha, but ja, is taken up in a flaming chariot of horses and Elisha is left behind without him. It says in verse nine, now it happened when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and it separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha was seeing this, and he was crying out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them to pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? Indeed, he himself also struck the waters, and they were divided here and there. And Elisha crossed over. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him, saw him and said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Behold now, uh, there are with your servants 50 excellent men. Please let them go and search for your master, lest the spirit of Yahweh has taken him up and cast uh, cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore 50 men, and they searched three days, but did not find him. So they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say, Do not go? Then the men of the city, that is Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold now, the the habitat of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar, and put salt in it, So they brought it to him, and he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says Yahweh, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or bitterness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young boys came out from the city and mocked him and said, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Then he looked behind him and saw them, and he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number, and he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. We're going to be talking about that last episode, also known as the first and only instance of a youth group in the Bible. Um, but this is a strange story. This is a very odd story. And probably makes you even more uncomfortable because you are yourself a, gr- a group of young people, and you're like, does God just do this all the time? Does he send out rogue random bears to destroy people just when he feels like it? Why is this here? It's, it's random. It's seemingly random, but is that all there is to it? Is that all there is to it? Just, just first off, if you're reading through 1 Kings at this time, the whole second half of 2 Kings chapter 2 could be easily removed, right? If you're, if you're here in 1 Kings to learn about the kings of Israel and their history, you don't need to know any of this about purified water. You don't need to know about bears ravaging children. You don't need to know about uh, Elisha crossing back over the Jordan. You don't need to know any of this. We could skip. The second half of 2 Kings 2 and go right to 2 Kings 3 and the story wouldn't slow down at all. If anything, this seems to kind of drag out the story a little bit. Let's get back to the action. And I'd even say to you, even if you're reading 1 and 2 Kings, to kind of find out about God's working through the prophets, this story doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Once again, uh, all of these random stories of Elisha after Elijah meet him seem a little bit unnecessary. And just kind of overly spectacular. Maybe, maybe not. I, I would say it's worth considering. Um, but there is something very interesting about this, this whole entire chapter. And it starts out with the geography. Let me kind of explain to you. Verse 13, you see, after Elisha leaves Elijah, what does he do? He goes to the Jordan. He goes to the Jordan. So let's write that out. Jordan. And he crosses. He crosses the Jordan. Right, and then in verse nineteen, and you get this idea from verse eighteen, Elisha shows up in Jericho, right? Random geography, perhaps. And then, of course, the last episode, Elisha is in oh, that's with the Uh is in Bethel, right? Geography. Why, why is Elisha going to all these random places and doing all these wonderful things? Well, if we would have read the first half of 1 Kings, you'd notice something. Elijah and Elisha were together at the Jordan in verse 6. And Elisha and Elijah were together in Jericho in verse 4. And Elisha and Elijah at the very beginning of the chapter were together, in verse 2, at Bethel. It's a chiasm. (laughs) But what does this chiasm mean? You see, Elijah in the first half, and Elisha, but look at this, following in the very footsteps of Elijah, and doing wonderful things just like Elijah used to do. What's going on here? Well, think about, think, about, think about how dramatic of a moment this would be, not only for Elisha, but also every single Israelite who fears Yahweh and loves Yahweh and looks up to Elijah, right? When Elisha leaves on a flaming chariot, this is a dramatic moment, but also a very troubling moment, because Elijah is someone who is almost larger than life. He is, he is the one defense, the one defense against the evil king Ahab and all of the evil kings that follow him, right? Elijah is the only spokesman for Yahweh, the only defense. And if you think about it biblically, Elijah's the only reason why anything good happens to Israel at all. And Elijah leaves, and this is very troubling, right? If you are like me, or if you are like Elisha, you probably too would tear your garments and mourn if someone so significant and strong and so stabilizing to you and your faith leaves you, right? You you see what Elisha says there. Oh, my father, oh, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. What is he saying there? I'm not totally sure, but I think I know what he's saying. He is saying, The defense and the security and the strength of Israel is so tied up in this prophet Elijah that if he leaves, our defenses leave, our strength leaves, our help leaves. Yahweh perhaps even leaves. He was the last one that Yahweh was seemingly working through. But now he is gone, and now we are completely vulnerable. What are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do without Elijah? That's the drama of this moment. We're toast without Elijah. Not only will the, the foreign powers destroy Israel, but the kings of Israel themselves are wicked men. They're going to wipe out the godly from the land. What are we gonna do now? Think about what would happen if, if in Israel, you know, their 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 defense system, the, the iron dome, that missile system that knocks out all of those, all those missiles firing into Israel. Think about what would happen if in a terrorist attack that thing got destroyed. What would, what would Jews in Israel and all over the world say? What are we going to do now? We're exposed. We're vulnerable to attack. Anybody can have their way with us. What are we going to do now? Our defense system is down. This is how Elijah felt to the godly people of Israel. This is how Elijah more than likely felt to Elisha himself. Now all of the arrows are going to come at me, and I'm not sure I'm ready to face those by themselves. But, but notice this. But notice this. In this little chapter, we see Elisha follow the same track as Elijah. And what do we see? The same God is with us. It doesn't matter who is on earth. If they grasp this God, Yahweh God, by faith, They have everything they need, right? Right? The same God is here, and that is a comfort to us, right? Elisha is able to cross the Jordan. Does that remind you of some episode that happened in the history of Israel, right? uh, Israel crossed over the Jordan when they came into the promised land. But this is the same God who is now crossing, causing the prophet Elisha to cross the Jordan as well. And this is a comfort to us. Our God is still here. The God of the conquest is still here. But this same God also cleanses us. Jericho has this deadly poison in their water which would completely destroy their well-being and their livelihood here in this city. But God cleanses the poison from their water. And this God is the same God who also confronts us. As we will see in our passage today, God is still a judge against sin. God is still present even when the great people fall even when the great people leave, our God is still God, and that is in tremendous comfort and a cleansing and a confrontation to us. God is our strength. God is our shield. He will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you hold this God by faith, you have every reason to be comforted, to be confronted, and even to find cleansing in whatever problems you face. But that brings us to our passage, Second Kings 2, 23 through uh, (coughs) 25, and I'm going to just title this, uh, J.C. Ryle titled this message, Two Bears, The Two Bears, but I'm going to have a more edgy title. Let's call the title of this message, Our God, The She-Bear. I'll explain it later. So what do we see here? We see here Elisha goes up, he goes up probably from Jericho at this point, and he's going up. But notice he's not going to Bethel, he is going past Bethel. Of course, geographically, he would have to go up, like it would, it would be an upward climb. He'd have to climb up kind of a, a hill to get out of the valley of the Jordan to get to the area where Bethel was. But he was also probably going north to Samaria and going north to Mount Carmel, we see in verse 25. So this is what he's doing. He is going up. And notice here, his intent is not to enter Bethel, but it is to pass by. And Bethel is the name of a northern city right on the border of of Judah and Israel. And Bethel is a significant city. If you've been reading in 1 Kings, Bethel is the center of idolatry. It is the center of, of, of severe idolatry that has led the entire nation of northern Israel astray. In 1 Kings 13, 12, 14, all of those chapters in 1 Kings, you see Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, northern Israel, set up a phony Yahweh-like religion in Bethel and in Dan. And his purpose was not to necessarily make a false religion, but to make a kind of a Yahweh-like religion or a Yahweh light religion it had its special days he even said here here's your gods when he set up these golden calves who led you out of egypt it was supposed to make the israelites in northern israel feel like they had a little bit of nice religion with them without feeling too guilty about it but it wasn't in order to make them too uncomfortable in their religion they were kind of ignoring what the word of god says here and having a, another place of worship but that's okay Because we'll just say this is fine, this is good. That is where Bethel is. Bethel represents false religion, a false form of Yahweh worship. And it's been representing that for 80 years now by this point. So, uh, generationally, that's about two generations that have passed in northern Israel since this idolatry has been practiced in Bethel. This is a center of Yahweh hate, of weak Yahwehism. But primarily, it's a center of anti-Yahwehism. And you see here in verse 23 that uh, a good size of young boys come out to meet Elisha as he is passing Bethel. These are probably not four-year-olds or five-year-olds. The young man description there, young boy description there, I mean, it's pretty elastic in how it's used throughout the Bible. Um, You could be a young man until you reach about 40, so we'd have no idea really how old these are. Um, For example, um, Joseph, when he was 39, was considered a young man like this. Uh, Absalom was considered this, even though he was a ruler of a kingdom. Although, it it probably is unlikely that these people were older than 20. It's probably closer to the mark to think that the youngest of them were around 10 years old, and the oldest of them were probably around 19 years old. Old. This is a group of young boys, and notice it's a good-sized group too. It's a, it's at least about forty-two big, and maybe even over that. It might even be as, as much as as sixty or seventy or eighty or a hundred in their size, as we will see in a moment. But that's right. This is the only recorded instance of a youth group in the Bible. A very unpleasant uh, recording of a youth group in the Bible. Actually, funny story. The first message I ever gave to a youth group. Serena was in the youth group, and I. And this was like the first message I ever gave. It was like kind of a side illustration talking about the first youth group in the Bible. It's always a, a great way to warm yourself up to a new group. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so I, maybe a little wisdom could have come in play there. But anyway, anyway, this is a pretty, a pretty negative picture of youth, you say. This is a picture of weakness, right? Young people, biblically, are considered immature. They're considered... The, the ones without wisdom, they're considered untrained or untested in their adulthood. Uh, they're, they're immature in their delights and their desires. This is a, a sign of spiritual weakness when you have a group of young people together. But you can also see here, this is a, a picture of, of rashness as well. Uh, these youths are not too wise. They go out, on the, out of the city to pick on a prophet of Yahweh. They're like, hey... We, we see Elisha passing by. Let's go yell at him a little bit. This is rash foolishness. But this is also a picture of wickedness. These youths kind of represent the entire nation of Israel. The entire nation of Israel is like this. Later on in Second Chronicles, all of Israel is described as a nation that mocks God's messengers, despises God's word, and scoffs at his prophets. Yes, older people are a little bit more wise To not say that out loud, but this is their attitude towards God and his word and his prophets. But these young people who have no self-control, they're willing to go out of the city, leave the gates to mock the prophet of God themselves. And, And notice what they say to him. Go up, you bald head. Now, to you, this is probably a dumb insult. Like, Man, I would never be caught saying bald head to anybody. But what are they really doing here? They're probably actually calling him a baldy. Um, and, and this is evidently in a title of scorn. Hair made you look glorious. Hair made you look royal. You think of Absalom with his glowing mane. You think of any lion, looks very kingly because he's got hair, but if you cut off the hair from the lion, he doesn't look kingly at all. Having no hair is kind of a, a scornful look. Now, this might not mean that Elisha was necessarily bald. Uh, maybe he wouldn't have even showed his head at all, if you think about it, Culturally, sometimes when they traveled, they put a hood over their head so they wouldn't have even shown their hair. But, but but what are what are they saying here? They they might be referencing uh, referencing Elijah here, right? Uh, Elijah was a gorilla of a man, right? He had hair all over the place over there. There's an example of Elisha right over there, back there at the soundstage, sound stage or sound. No, never mind. That's somebody else. Right? He had hair everywhere, and Elisha was a. Uh, the, the, you know, kind of the prophet underneath Elijah, and maybe he had a lot less hair than Elijah had, and so maybe this is a mockery, right? You're no Elijah, you're just a cheap replacement for Elijah. You're a bald head, comparatively, to Elijah. It also could be that he actually cut his hair, because sometimes you would cut your hair in fulfillment of a vow, but that's getting way too much into Old Testament detail. But all to say, they are scorning and mocking Elisha, Right? And here's what they're probably saying, right? Do you hear this in the tone of their language? They're probably saying, you are a pathetic replacement of that gorilla man, Elijah. That's probably what they're saying, right? We wish you would keep going up. Keep, just keep going right up and out of here. You know, Elijah or Elisha was already going up on his way past Bethel, and maybe they're making a reference. Keep going up. Keep going up. Go right up. And matter of fact, we wish you'd go all the way up and follow Elijah right out of this earth to heaven and take your pathetic God with you. That's really what they're saying. Go up, you bald head. Just follow your master right out of here. And while you're at it, please take your dumb God with you. He is not welcome here. We have a more powerful God than Yahweh with us. Perhaps that's what they are saying. But notice this, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have done that at all. And why? Why should they have not have done that? It's not because Elisha, or even Elijah, was someone particularly special. It's not even because they were older people and younger people shouldn't mock older people, which is also true, but that's not really why they shouldn't have done that. The reason why they shouldn't have done that is because Elisha is the very messenger of God himself. He is the prophet of Yahweh himself. And he carries with him the word of Yahweh himself. And so uh, how you treat Elisha is parallel to how your heart is treating Yahweh. How you respond when his word is revealed before you, whether that's in the presence of a prophet or when the prophet is speaking, shows you, reveals to you, your heart and your attitude towards God himself. How you treat Yahweh's word is how you treat Yahweh. In other words, by the way, this is the, the big picture of First and Second Kings, right? First and Second Kings tells you the history of Israel, but it tells you in such a way as to in, show you and insist that God keeps his word and God's faithful to his promises. And it really wants to underline and highlight every time a prophet speaks, even when a prophet is sinful, his words still come to pass because when Yahweh speaks, his word is sure. And you need to be careful about how you treat Yahweh's word. And you need to be especially careful how you treat the representative of Yahweh in the prophet of Yahweh every single time. There's this instance in 1 Kings 13 where there's this prophet who is a pretty pathetic excuse for a prophet, really. He disobeys God's word later on in the, in the chapter. But he brings a, a judgment against Jeroboam as he's setting up this altar in Bethel. And Jeroboam just reaches out his hand and points at this prophet and his arm is totally shriveled up. You do not mess with Yahweh's prophet. That is the story over and over again. You ignore the prophet of Yahweh to your own shame. That's what you see in Solomon's life and you attack the prophet to your own destruction. That's what we see in this passage. That's reason number 1 why they shouldn't have done this. You you You're treating Yahweh like this. But notice also another reason why they shouldn't have done this was our God, Yahweh, is in a covenant relationship with this sinful nation Israel, and to be in a covenant relationship with this God means that you have a relationship with a God who brings covenant blessings and covenant curses, right? They will feel this in a moment because our God is a God who keeps covenant with his people whether that is to bless or to curse this is of course referring to the the Old Testament Mosaic covenant right God said I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse now the upside of being in a covenant with God being in a relationship with Yahweh God of the universe is that he promises to bless you for faithfulness in the Old Testament and to bless those who bless you it is remarkable if you look in your old testament and see how faithful this god is to his promise there is an upside in other words even israel as they are grumbling in the wilderness and complaining against their god and even being disciplined by the hand of their god are still under the covenant of god where balaam can be up here on the hill trying to call down curses on israel and yahweh will not let him because those are my people those are my people they may be grumbling against me, and complaining against me, and sinning against me, but I will not receive a curse against them. Or you could think about Abram as he's failing to truly grab hold of God's promises, and he's running away to places like Egypt, or he's running after uh, so human solutions like Hagar. He is sinning against Yahweh, and yet, it still remains true that those who bless Abraham are blessed and those who curse Abraham are cursed. Or you could even think about David as he is actively sinning against God with Bathsheba. God is still keeping promises to David and still promising to build up a house through David, even through Bathsheba, the very object of his sin. That's, That's the upside of being in a relationship with God. He takes his promises seriously. But the downside of being in a relationship with God is the same blade. He takes his promises seriously. And these little <coughs> Israelites are about to feel what happens when you disregard or loathe the word of God. When, when God's people fail, God's punishments come too to His own people. You could look back at Leviticus 26. When God's making the covenant with Israel, he makes these blessings. He says, if you keep my statutes, if you, if you keep my commandments, if you walk in my ways, he says this in Leviticus 26, 9, I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you and you will eat the old supply and clear out the old house." Of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and, and be your God, and you shall be my people. You will feel an experience of a return to the Garden of Eden. I will dwell among you, and I will be your God. If you are faithful and do not loathe my word. But then he goes on in in chapter 26 of Leviticus, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not do all of my commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul loathes my judgments, so as not to do all my commandments and break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And for verse after verse after verse, in Leviticus 26 is curse after curse after curse. To be in a relationship with God is is incredible, but it brings a two-edged sword, right? You cannot be in a relationship with God and not care about how you behave or how you respond or how you act under his word. But that brings us back to 2 Kings chapter 24. Notice what Elisha does to these youths as they ridicule and they mock him. He curses them. But notice, he curses them in the name of Yahweh. This is not a grumpy old man. Man, kids are just not the same way they used to be. They used to be so much more respectful to the old. No, no. Uh, Elisha, do you see this here? He he, he is saying, you are cursed. And and you even feel that after reading Leviticus 26, don't you? Right? How, how, How dare you loathe God's messenger or or ignore God's prophet. You are under a curse. God will loathe you. God will judge you. God will punish you. Isn't that what Elisha might be saying? You are cursed. You are cursed if this is how you behave towards me. The curses of Yahweh's covenant are falling on you. That's what Elisha perhaps is saying. And then we see this sudden, startling judgment. Two female bears come out of the woods and tear 42 of them apart. Just tear them apart. Wow. What's, what's going on here? Well, uh, a bear, a uh, female bear especially, actually, is a biblical picture of ferocity and danger. If you see a female bear, according to the Bible, you run as far as you can the other way. That's what you see in the Bible all over the place. It is the sign of extreme danger. Hey, this is an animal in the wild you want to avoid at all costs. Proverbs 17, 12 says this, let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Now that's, of course, kind of making a joke about how dangerous a fool in their folly can be. But the sense of this is, I'm trying to find a picture of the most deadly thing in nature, and that is a female bear robbed of her cubs. You would rather be with a female robbed of her a female bear robbed of her cubs than with a fool in his folly that's what the province is trying to say but 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 a female bear, especially one robbed of her cubs, is a picture as well of a bitter warrior. This warrior will fight with personal abandon they they won 't care about themselves they they will they will they will seek to destroy as many as they can, as quickly as they can, because they have disregarded personal safety for another purpose and mission. Second uh, Samuel 17, verse 8. Hushai, this is one of one of Absalom's, this is Absalom, the son of David, he, he, he made a revolt against David and, and he has this wise man who's shy and he's given him some wisdom and he says, you know that your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are bitter of soul like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field and your father is a man of war and will not spend the night with the people. Essentially what he's saying here is you should you know, tread lightly with your dad. Because he is going to be a very bitter fighter and he's going to fight all the way to the end because he's so angry. This, of course, is kind of a, kind of a little shrewd effort on Hushai's part to trick Absalom into not fighting. But uh, all to say, notice, he is going to fight like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. He's going to lose all personal abandon. Why? Why does a she-bear fight that way when she is robbed of her cubs? Because her cubs are in danger. And if you come close to her cubs, she will destroy you. by the way, the bears described here are probably Syrian bears. they're smaller than what we would see as a bear's normal size, definitely maybe even half the size of a grizzly uh, bear, but they were still feared according to the Bible. A Syrian bear um, would be about yeah half that size it's it's the, the largest the largest bear of this kind to ever be found was about six feet long and about 500 pounds. So a little bit shorter than me. Um, But usually the the male bears of this breed were about four feet long. Um, They're mainly known for their white or straw-like fur and their white claws. So this would be a Syrian bear we'd be talking about here, not a massive grizzly, just a Syrian bear. But there are two of them. But it's quite clear that these two bears are very fierce and very angry in the amount of carnage that they are able to inflict on this group notice 42 young people are cut up and then notice here they're they're not out for a meal they're out to do maximum damage to as many people as they can and they seem to have some sort of supernatural power to grab all of these kids you'd think the kids like this could get away but they can't And by the way, notice this, the text doesn't say that these bears killed all of these kids. It just says that they tore up 42 of them, meaning more than that probably were present harassing Elisha, and probably many of those youths escaped unscarred and returned home to Bethel and told of the horrors of this day, and maybe even some that received some scars escaped, although that's up to doctors to explain to you. But, but, But why are these bears here? And why are these bears doing this to this group of people? And why are they attacking in this way? I don't think you should misunderstand these bears or misunderstand this passage. This is not a passage of the evil evil humanity taking over the habitat of the bears and the bears kind of getting back at them. That's not what we see happening here at all. I would say that's silly. I would say to you that these are covenant bears. Covenant-keeping bears, in fact. These are bears at the authority of Yahweh doing his will exactly when he wants it to be done. They are representatives and they are instruments of Yahweh's anger and Yahweh's judgment. Going back to Leviticus 26, notice what Leviticus 26, 22 says about what happens when you break covenant with Yahweh. It says this, "'I will send out among you the beasts of the field.'" which will bereave you of your children and cut down your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie desolate. These are bears that are promised from long ago by Yahweh himself to those who loathe his words and refuse to hear his covenant and his commands. These are covenant-keeping bears. These are instruments of Yahweh in Yahweh's hand. And as a result, as an outcome, few escape. Few survive, perhaps, and the few that do survive can only run home to Bethel to tell of the horrors of this day. And I imagine the news of this account would spread like wildfire all over Bethel and all over Israel, right? And what is the news of this account? Elijah's gone, but Elisha's God, or Elijah's God is still here. And Elisha is just like Elijah. And Elijah's God, Yahweh, will not leave us alone, even though he is gone. That is the news. God's prophets are cut down, but Yahweh is the same. And we cannot face him. We crumble under him. Great. Fantastic. Fantastic. But there are further lessons I I would suggest you should tease out of this this story. I'm going to give you just three lessons. Two I stole from J.C. Ryle, and one I kind of brought up myself. But uh, three lessons from this account for you today, beyond what we've just talked about. Three lessons about the two bears. Number one, notice this. God takes notice of what young people do. God takes notice about what young people do. God cares about what you do even in your youth or what you don't do even in your youth, right? It's tempting to think, uh, I'll only care about spiritual things when I'm older. It doesn't matter until I'm older. No one cares about my spirituality right now or how I respond to the word of God right now. Nobody cares. J.C. Ryle says this, he took notice of the little children of Bethel. And punish them for their wickedness. Remember, I beg you that God has not changed. He still is the same. He is every day taking notice of you. I believe some people think that it does not matter how children behave because God only notices grown-up men and women. This is a very great mistake. The eyes of God are upon boys and girls, and he marks all they do. When they do right, he is pleased, and when they do wrong, he is displeased. Dear children, never forget this. There is no time in your life where you are free to sin. God cares about what you do, and God takes account of what you do. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. Sin is sure to bring horror and sorrow to your home. Sin is sure to bring horror and sorrow into your home. Sin is sure to bring horror and sorrow into your home. Don't you think it must have been a horrible and sad day in Bethel this day? Forty-two young people decimated, perhaps, never came home? Or if they did come home, came home with lifelong scars, Of this day and lifelong memories of this day, this was a horrifying and scary day in Bethel. Uh, J.C. Ryle writes this. Sin brought wounds and death on the children of Bethel. It brought weeping and crying to the homes of their parents. If these wicked boys and girls had not pleased God, they would not have been torn apart by the bears. Dear children, as long as you live, you will always see the same things those who will have their own way and run into sin are sure sooner or later to find themselves in trouble this trouble may not come at once it may even be kept for many years but sooner or later it is sure to come there is a dreadful hell at last for those who still go on sowing sin you will reap you will reap the sorrow and the horror of your sin and, and notice what this this, this chapter says. It, it kind of says two things about this sorrow and horror. It says, you will reap the sorrow and horror of your own personal sin, right? Uh, these These young people are reaping sorrow and grief for their own sin, their own attitude against Yahweh and his word, right? This is the consequences of their response to the prophet of Yahweh. And, and by the way, we, we can have scars too from our sins, and they're not going to be like bare sc- scars. They're going to be probably worse. They're going to be eternal scars that are constantly going to be remembered by you in your sin. And, and consider this. Consider this for a thought. Your future sins against God will always begin with your present attitudes towards God's Word, right? This sin of this day didn't just begin on this day, but began days prior in a response and an attitude to Yahweh's prophet. Next time we see Elijah, or anybody connected to Elijah, we are going to mock him ruthlessly because we do not fear him at all. Your, your sins against God's word, your sins of commission, your actions are always preceded by your sins of omission, that is, failing to have a right heart towards God's Word, failing to have a right thankfulness under God's Word, that will always result in sins of commission later. And those sins will bring horror and sorrow to your life. Notice, you will keep the horror and sorrows, or you will reap the horror and sorrows of your own sin. But notice also, uh, those whom you love will also reap the horror and sorrows of your own sin. Think about this. Uh, These attitudes towards God's Word were learned. Were learned from unbelieving parents who needed God's word, who didn't need God's word in their life for one moment. This, yes, was a judgment against individual personal sin, but it was also the effects of sins in the household. And your sin, your sin will impact those you love too and will bring horror and sorrow to you in their reflection in those that you love around you. And that's not a message for today as much as it is a lesson for 10 years from now the 10-year-from-now mark in your life, will you see your sins being rippled out from you in its reflection in those that you love most, or will you see God's grace being rippled out from you in the life of those people that you love? That's what you choose right now, as you choose to either honor God's word or reject it. Let's think about one last lesson to learn, though. God's salvation, God's grace, God's... Mercy and God's kindness aren't just for old people either, right? If, if the judgment side is true through this lesson, that God cares about young people, the redemption side of this story is true as well. God's mercy and God's grace are for young people too. You may be young, but God's grace is for you. God's word is for you. Rael says this, let no one make you think that you are too young to serve God that you may safely wait till you are men and women. That is not true. It is never too soon to ser- serve God. As soon as you know right from wrong, you are old enough to give your heart to God and to follow Christ The child that is old enough to be chastised for swearing and telling lies is not too young to be taught to pray and read the Bible. The child that is old enough to displease God is also big enough to please him. The child that is old enough to be tempted by the devil is not too young to have the grace of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Believe this, though. Uh, Believe this, the word of God that is The word of God in this passage that is such a word of judgment is also in this context, in this chapter, healing and comforting, and that message can be for you as well. This doesn't have to simply be a judgment passage. This is also a reminder that God's grace can come to you. You may feel too weak, too helpless against your sin, but that might just, dear ones, that might just put you in the perfect position to finally receive God's grace in the right way. Come to Jesus with your sin, with your helplessness, with your anger, with your rebellion, and say, I am weak, and I need someone else to be strong and save me. Jesus died on behalf of sinners to bring you to God while you were weak. And that even includes the sin of your youth, because you will answer for the sin of your youth. Therefore, Jesus died to save you from the sin of your youth as well. Jesus is the same, though, yesterday, today, and forever. And he can be served even now. He can be trusted in even now. He can be believed in even now. And actually, for those that are in Jesus Christ, there is no more curse. You ever think about that? All of the covenant curses that come with being in a relationship with God, are removed. That's what it says in Romans 1, eight. right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is discipline. There is parental love and correction. But that discipline never comes to God's people because of God's wrath or God's curse, but from God's love. I see you in your hardness of heart, and I'm going to correct you out of love. Think about this, even the worst punishment that a believer can undergo for their sin in this life is better, is better than all of the griefs that come with all of the joys of this life, right? Even a life filled with God's discipline in this life is better than a future full of God's wrath, right? That's what you cherish and you believe. You have a God who has become for you Come for you a great father and protector and shield. You are no longer all on your own, defenseless against evil. I love Psalm 18. It says this, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Think on this in Christ Jesus the god who was once your adversary and your judge becomes your shield and your protector and your comfort and your defense matter of fact i'd even say this if you think about it the god who is vicious in his attack against judge against sin becomes a protector for you forever eternally. He he, he once was a she-bear against you, but now he's a she-bear for you. And every adversary that comes against you must answer to him. That is what it's like to be the people of God. Nothing can happen to me outside of the will and the desire of my God in in heaven willing it to come. And therefore I have no fear. Regardless of how alone I feel in this world, my God is with me to the end. But that only comes to you through Jesus. Only comes to you through his grace. Because you are an eternally secure relationship with God like this, all of that she-bear tendency of his works towards you for comfort, and for grace, and for protection. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Crazy passage. But it is a passage that reminds us of your grace, even as it warns us of the wickedness of sin. Thank you for that, and bless us through it. Amen.